Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome everybody to Thoughtful Thursday on Girl Power Half Hour. We're excited to be here again. It's almost the end of the week. Tasha, how are you? I am good. I am ready for Friday. I will tell you that. I'm ready for tomorrow. <laughs> Thankful for today. Ready for tomorrow. Yes, well, I'm I'm not sure how ready I am for the weekend because on my running schedule, my coach, who is my daughter, uh-huh. Lindsay, she's, uh, the program we're doing is uh, Couch to 10K, mm-hmm. and she's done all this before, but I have to run 20 minutes straight on Saturday, uh-huh. and I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just kind of like, okay, not sure how I'm going to do this. But uh, she keeps telling me I'm doing good, so I'm going to keep doing it. So I don't know. (laughs) I'd like for it to be Thursday and Friday a little longer. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we are, tomorrow is our casual Friday question and answers. And if you have any questions that you would like to ask, that you'd like for us to discuss, please, please message us on our Facebook page, Girl Power Half Hour, because we would love to address those questions and don't know that we'll have answers, but we will definitely discuss them and just kind of see what happens. Um, We love doing that. We love to talk, so uh, amongst ourselves. So uh, we'll have a, you know, we need questions, and we'd love for you all to be more interactive on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear about uh, what you're thinking and topics that you would like discussed. And, um, you know, I'm excited about the rest of the shows, so get us the questions for Friday. You can message us. And, Please. Tasha, you have, you have a, an exciting thing for next Tuesday. I do. Um, Dr. Charlotte Dunham, who I've mentioned numerous times um, and a couple of times on the show, she's actually in the Women's Studies uh, Department at Texas Tech. She's the head of the Women's Studies Department at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, and she is another mentor of mine. I'm just absolutely, uh, I'm just fascinated by her, her work, her knowledge, everything that she does and has done. And she is going to be on on Tuesday talking about a very special topic. We'll keep that secret for all of you so that you can go to our Facebook page and be updated on that information. Again, it's Girl Power Half Hour um, on our Facebook page, and you can find out what she will be talking about. But it will be happening on Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Yeah, and what I'm doing is on our Facebook page, on Sunday I'm going in and updating our week's programming, and I'm pinning it to the top of the page so that it's always up there and you can always uh, just go to the page and it's right there for you to see. So you don't have to scroll down to try to find it. It's always pinned to the top. So, um, you know, just go there and and be updated and we'll let you know Sunday what the topic will be. It'll be Sunday night before I get it on there, but uh, for sure before Monday morning it'll be on there. But we've got a really... uh, Tasha has agreed to tell us a little bit about her story for Thoughtful Thursday. And um, she's going to, I believe, start off by reading something from her upcoming book. 
And her book is going to be published in uh, next year, actually. And I'm really excited about that. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to be keep, you know, get on to her about. Have you written anything today? Have you written anything today? <laughs> kind of like she was with me. So, uh, but uh, it's going to be her story, but with lots of lots of information, uh, helpful things for everybody because a lot of people will be able to relate to her story, uh, at least bits and pieces of it, and um, how she, you know, is where she is today because of who she was you know, back then. So, Tasha, I'm going to turn it over to you. Great. Thank you. Um, I am going to read uh, right away just a little bit from this this book, and, and this is actually the very first of the book. And, um, you know, I I am, like you said, right? I'm writing this. It is a story about my life, and but but it is relatable in the sense that as I've mentioned on past shows, I am an ACOA, adult child of an alcoholic and addict, and there are many out there in the world, and I'm aware of that. I'm aware of the numbers. They're very high. And I know that there's also very little help in terms of resources for ACOA um, or for COA, children of alcoholics and addicts, simply because that situation is a lot less noticeable a lot less obvious, and most of the resources go to the addict or the alcoholic. And uh, unfortunately, the rest of the family, and more especially the children, are left untreated, and um, and they're sick too. It's uh, That disease is systemic. Again, when Sarah was on, we discussed it. When Sarah Skog was on, on on Tuesday, if you missed that episode, it is archived um, on our Blog Talk Radio page. You're, you're more than welcome to go look at that and listen that to catch up, but she was talking about addiction, and uh, she and I both come from, you know, the the school of thought that it is, in fact, a disease, the medical model that we follow, um, and, and that disease is systemic. In other words, it affects the whole system, the whole family. It, it doesn't just affect one person. Every individual within that family system is affected, negatively so, well, and because Tasha, everyone... She really- yeah, she answered a question for me because yeah. it is genetic, you know, because yeah. I could possibly have the predisposition to become an addict in some way. Right, exactly. Um, and thank goodness I, I haven't. But, you know, right. so it does affect people long-term, not just short-term. Right, Exactly. And, you know, the truth of it is everyone maladapts in a family when you have when you have someone when I say maladapt, what I mean is adapt in a negative way. A way that is, you know, a sick functioning or negative way. And so everyone is affected negatively. It becomes a very toxic environment. Um as such. I think there are quite a few people out there that can relate to this and if for no other reason than the fact that, you know, sharing your story, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you've been or what you came from, I think is healing in and of itself. So if nothing else, it's for me. (laughs) Um, So here goes. This is the first couple of paragraphs out of the first chapter of the book. At the age of five, I was an adorable child like any other. I was quite talented. I could sing, dance, and play a couple of easy songs on the piano. 
there was an ease in attaining of these skills because my family was multi-talented as well. Family get-togethers consisted of uncles, aunts, and grandparents around the piano, played by my, my beloved aunt. By the way, I spoke about her on our recent show about yeah. Loretta Lynn. You might remember that. Um, singing gospel songs and laughing out loud at each other's lyrical mistakes. The extended family seemed closer then. I was adored. I was honestly loved. I sang for that audience any time there was a calling. I played for praise. I was recorded on tape and record for family and friends. I was the talk of the family. I sang in church. I sang and played for the attention. There was so much attention directed at me. My mother never shared those moments. My my mother never saw me in the limelight. My mother was busy playing with her own skills and talents. My mother was escaping the depths of hell that my extended family was trying to mask with singing and laughter and praise for an adorable five-year-old child. My mother was drowning in her sorrows and shooting up her relief. My mother was too sick to warn me and too weak to know she was right. My grandparents raised me from the time I was born. They were intensely focused on my well-being. They were extremely concerned for my safety. I was their top priority. They had shoved their daughter aside and I became the prodigal granddaughter. They fought my mother when she showed her face. They shamed her and guilted her for her methods of coping. They never covered my ears. They never let me defend her, though I tried. They never saw me screaming. They never heard me say stop. They never knew I hated them for making my mother leave. The moment she sat me down and told me she was leaving, I knew I would never forgive them or myself for whatever I had done or not done to make her go. I begged her not to leave me. I pleaded with her, please stay. She never backed down. I sat on the trunk at the end of my bed. I looked into her green eyes, and I knew that was the moment I lost my mother. I knew that was the moment I lost my hope. I knew that was the moment I lost myself. I knew that was the moment I would never forget, the most painful and defining moment of my life. And honestly, what I came away with at five years old, sitting at the end of that bed listening to her say that, was that there was something wrong with me. Because why else would my mother leave? Because at the age of five, I could not put together that my mom was a heroin addict. And heroin had become more important to her than her own child than herself, than anything else in the world. That did not make sense to me because there was nothing more important to me than my mother. And sitting there at the end of that bed and hearing her say that, I remember very vividly feeling hatred for my grandparents and blaming them for her leaving, for her addiction, for whatever was causing her to walk away for keeping me from her because that's how it felt and blaming myself for whatever I had done or not done to not be good enough to make her want me more than whatever it was that was pulling her away. So when I walked away from that, of course, none of this was something that I consciously knew at that age. I'm looking back on it. I can see it now. But I struggled deeply, I mean, from that moment forward with abandonment issues. 
So I put myself together, and where some children that are COA come away with a sense of rebellion, and yes, you know me well, Annette, I am a rebel. And, yeah. of course, there was a fighting there was a fighting spirit in me. But where some kids will go to the extreme and act out, I sucked it all up and tried to be the best kid possible. Like, I seriously tried to get involved in every single activity, not only to busy my mind and to keep from feeling whatever pain I was certainly feeling from the loss of my mother and the fear of what next, because the world, not just the floor, but the world had just been pulled out from under me. And I just decided if I can be good enough, if I can if I can be a straight-A student, if I can be involved in every single thing that there is to be involved in, I will be so amazing that no one will leave me again. Well, let and, me ask you this, Sasha. Let me ask you yeah. this real quick. Um, do you think that you just sucking it up and trying to be the best you could be instead of just falling apart at that young age and being rebellious, do you think that hindered your healing or do you think it had any effect at all? Honestly, I don't think that it would have mattered how I would have handled it because the truth is ACOAs, um, each one of each one has a different role in their family. There, There is a list of dysfunctional roles in a chemically dependent family. Mm-hmm. And I know that I've talked to you about them before, but, you know, it's the scapegoat and the lost child and the mascot and the hero. Well, I was the right. hero. That's how I started. And the thing is, I was an only child. And the interesting part about being an only child is that an only child tends to, tends to rotate throughout those different roles, playing one of each of those roles throughout their lives and not just sticking to one. Now, if I would have had siblings, my siblings would have fallen into one of those roles and I would have probably stuck with one. Right. You know, because that would have been my role in that family because that would have been how I maladapted and then my sister, my hypothetical sister, would have been, you know, the mascot or my brother would have been the scapegoat. Um, but as such, being an only child, I really kind of went through all of that, all of those roles. So I don't really think that any of them are better. I do feel like the scapegoat, the one that acts out, tends to be less likely to have long-lasting problems because they're getting it out. Um, mm-hmm. Now, yeah. that's, there is some research that shows it, and that's, a lot of that also is my personal opinion because that's what I've seen. The lost child, the one that holds it in and just kind of stays in their room, which I was definitely some of that too, really is kind of a ticking time bomb because they don't ever yeah. get it out. Um, and so in the in I guess the short answer is, you know, no, I don't really think that it, it would have made much of a difference because I did rotate through those roles yeah. eventually, you know. Yeah. Um. And I, the thing is, I, I walked away with this idea that I had done something to deserve it. And I also think growing up in this environment, and this is a little different from every from everyone else out there that might have experienced a similar 
family situation. I was raised by my grandparents with my mother in the home. So I saw my grandparents' reactions to her, and that in turn made me think, if I act like her, they're going to kick me out too. And Mm. she just left me, so then they'll leave me, and then what will happen to me? Um, That is so scary for a child. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. It, It really was terrifying for me, but the worst part was, and I did not know this until much later in life, because I didn't know what an ACOA was. I didn't know what a boundary right. was. I didn't know any of this lingo, and I didn't even know any of it in terms of how to do it either. I mean, my family was, you know, completely dysfunctional, um, addicted to all kinds of substances and, and behaviors, and certainly didn't teach any healthy habits, coping skills, communication skills, nothing. Like, that was taught. I, that's all stuff that I've since learned on my own. Um, but I, you know, I seriously felt very fearful oftentimes because my grandmother, who ended up taking over my mother's role, was an ACOA as well and and, and an untreated one. And yeah. her father was an abusive alcoholic and she had never gotten any help for any of her abuse and any of what she experienced or was subjected to growing up with him. And as such, she was taking that out on not only my mother, but also me. So there were times that she would use, you know, we discussed on past shows caring habits versus um, deadly habits. And and I'll Mm -hmm. I'll share those on another show as well. But, you know, the punishing and the threatening and the blaming and all of that being the the deadly habits, and, and she practiced those. And in in effort to punish me, oftentimes she would tell me, well, I'm just going to go find another kid to adopt, and I'll just put you out on the street. I'll just go find another kid. Well, to a kid who's been left by their own mom, that's a real threat. That's not like <laughs> – that's not just like a mom walking out of a store and looking at her kid and saying, okay, I'm leaving. If you're going to stay, bye-bye. And then the kid runs after the mom because for me it was like, wait, you really might leave because my own mother just left. And that's right, a very right. real possibility. And so I was – those abandonment issues, rather than being treated in me, because she never had hers treated either, they were used against me to manipulate me psychologically to keep me doing what I needed to do. Um, I grew up in that sick environment, and honestly, I saw my mother go through about 18 different treatment facilities or at least was in rehab 18 different times. I, I won't say they were different facilities because she was actually in Vernon State Hospital numerous times. Um, and the interesting thing about that is when you're an adult and you hear that someone goes to treatment, okay, you know, it's like you've, you might visit someone in treatment. You're visiting them in the hospital. It's, you're an adult. You can put that together. As mm-hmm. a child, when your mom is in a treatment center, and back then, and you have to remember, I was born in 1972 and do the math. So back then, Vernon State Hospital, which was a mental hospital, you know, that was where people went for treatment for alcoholism and addiction. And so when I would see my mother 
as a child, it wasn't where everybody else saw their mom at home and a safe environment, a safe place, which is emotionally and physically safe, you hope. I mean, that's all ideal. I realize everybody has issues in their family, but idealistically, you know, you saw your mom in a safe environment. And growing up, not only was in an unsafe environment when she was home because the issues between her and my grandparents and the fact that she typically was either dating or marrying a drug dealer who was also abusive, and, and I was subjected to that. But when she would end up in treatment and I would go visit her, you know, hauled in by my grandparents to see my mother, my mother was in a rubber room with no mattress, surrounded by people outside that rubber room with all kinds of mental disorders and illnesses. And I remember vividly her being in Vernon State Hospital. I walked in, my grandparents behind me, and they're not obviously thinking much of anything of this. And there was an older woman in a wheelchair rolling quickly toward me, you know, just mumbling because heavily medicated, whatever she was on. And I was terrified. And I grew up in that. That was seeing my mom. That's what I came to know as visiting my mother. She wasn't home much, um, but when she did come home, one year, I was seven years old, um, she would sleep on our couch She never wanted to sleep in the front bedroom uh, or probably didn't want to make much of a permanent space. So she would sleep on the couch, and I would would be startled awake, quite quite honestly, by my grandmother every morning. She was not a morning person, and nor am I, and I'm pretty sure that's why, because when you're startled awake (laughs) by Mommy Dearest every day, it doesn't make you like mornings. So she would wake me up, you know, and... And have me go wake up, she would say, Teresa, Teresa was my mother's name. Um, she would have me wake her. So even then, I was somewhat kind of used as a go-between, you know, with between her issues and my mother's issues, and I was the in-between to kind of be the mediator at seven, which, you know, we all know that that's a boundary way over-crossed there. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember waking up and kind of stumbling in into the hallway and uh I would always see my grandmother in the bathroom, you know, just putting on her makeup with this bitter, sour face, barely dressed. Um and I turned the corner, uh the living room being on my right side and there's this the couch in front of me, and I, I had often watched my mother sleep. I was I admired her. And, I mean, I was in love with my mom, and more so than probably sure. other people because I never saw her. So she was more of a mystery to me. Um, and so it, it really was this, this intense love for her and, and a desire to know her. So I would, any moment that I had to just stare at her, I would. And when she was sleeping, I I would stare at her and watch her sleep. And her eyes were kind of always half open. Just It was strange to me, but I always noticed that about her. And 
her eyes, you know, I knew they were green. I mean, they were the most beautiful eyes I'd ever looked into. So I was very enamored of her, and I would stare into her face. And I knew what it looked like when everything was, quote, unquote, okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember her arm being kind of limp, and I went over in front of her, and I noticed her face was different, and I noticed her eyes were closed, and I knew that was unusual. And I did not notice that there was an empty bottle of sleeping pills at my feet. I did not notice that there were a couple of pills strewn about on the floor that had been toppled out of the bottle. But I did know that she would not wake up. And I went to tell my grandmother, you know, she's not waking up. And I wasn't frantic because I didn't put it together. I just knew that she wasn't getting up. And my grandmother hysterically went to wake my mother. Could not rouse her, of course. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, 911. I mean, you could call an operator. That was it. And we, she just immediately called the general practitioner who just told us, get her in the car, get her to the hospital, the ER, immediately. You'll be faster than an ambulance. So that's what we did. I don't remember any of it except that I shared it the next day at show and tell in front of my first grade class because mm-hmm. – As an adult child of an alcoholic, as a child of an alcoholic, my normal was very abnormal to the rest of the world. But it was my normal. And I didn't think anything of it except that it was exciting. And my mother lived. She was five minutes away from death. We got her there. They pumped her stomach, and she lived. But I thought, what an exciting story to share. And, of course ended up in the counselor's office at school with my grandmother being told, oh, my goodness, your granddaughter just shared this. And, of course, I was just told never tell, never talk, never trust. And those are the rules of an alcoholic family. They're very embarrassed about what's going on. They don't want you to tell anyone because they don't want you to know, and they don't want anyone to think that there are problems. You know, you don't want anybody to know that there are problems Because if there are problems, that says something about us as a family. And if someone would have realized there were problems, I might have gotten help. But what, in fact, happened was I spent 18 years hiding that problem, not really even realizing it was a problem, because no one else seemed to think that there was anything wrong because no one else was saying anything to me. And no one was helping me because I was a straight-A student, I was in band. I was in choir. I was in jazz band. I had took guitar lessons. I was a great piano well, player. Me, I was a singer. You know, let me ask you this. When did you realize that that wasn't normal or quote-unquote normal? I didn't realize that that wasn't normal until I was 31 years old. Mm. And, of course, I knew that there were tumultuous relationship in my life. I knew that I was dating a lot of drug addicts and a lot of alcoholics and a lot of abusive men. I thought that I just seemed to have a magnet on me somewhere for douchebags. I had no idea that I was somewhat seeking them out because they were familiar. I had no idea that I was dating my mother. I had no idea that I was dating my grandmother. I had no idea that I was seeking this stuff out so that I could reinvent my past to try to resolve it through someone else. I didn't know any of that. All I knew is that I had suppressed so much trauma, so much abuse, so so much abnormal that I had PTSD. 
And I had it so severely that I would get anxiety attacks in the middle of class at Texas Tech University, in the middle of a movie at a local theater, for any reason, for no reason, it seemed, at all, I would get these massive anxiety attacks and I ended up going to counseling because I was terrified that I was losing my mind. And I remember starting counseling, really terrified I was going to lose my mind, and I had a close friend tell me, maybe it's not that you're going to lose your mind, maybe it's that you're going to get it back. Mm. Good. And that is exactly what happened. I got my mind back. I got my memories back. I got myself back. You know that quote, it's never too late to be who you might have been, and that's exactly what I learned. And it took seven years of hardcore counseling, and I mean facing the scary stuff. And you know you walked through a lot of that with me. Yeah. And a lot of cutting off. I mean, I my mother passed away when I was 20 from cirrhosis. My grandfather passed away when I was 21 with heart disease, and he was an alcoholic and a a smoker as well. My my grandmother passed away in 2008 from emphysema. I cut her off five years before she passed away because of the toxicity and the abuse, and I spared spared myself the rest of that. You were there. But for more on that story, I do have that book coming out next year, and I hope everyone will read it because it really is important, and I I certainly want to share it and help anyone I can with it. So. Well, remember that tomorrow is uh, Casual Friday question and answers, and we would love for you to, you know, just give us some information, give us some questions, go on our Facebook page and uh, message us. So we will talk to you Friday.